Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Happy Easter, everybody. Um, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Chapel College, and I'm really honored to get to preach, to get to open up God's Word with you. Uh, we are here today. Day on Easter celebrating this historic event that we believe happened 2,000 years ago that the tomb was empty and that on Easter morning uh, they went to go uh, see the body of Jesus and treat the, the body the corpse of Jesus and he wasn't there and because 2,000 years ago the tomb was empty we believe that changes everything for us everything in our lives today um, that impacts us still today and so we're going to be in the book of Luke today so if you got your Bibles your iPhone Bibles or anything like that uh, flip to Luke we'll also put the the verses up on the screen but also if you made it to college without a Bible or you lost it or you don't know where it is you know, we've got Bibles around the room just take one on your way out uh, we've got black kind of hardcover Bibles and we've got some purple leather bound Bibles uh, we'd love to give you one of those and so just on your way out grab one of those uh, what, what we're talking about today and what we're going to see is really Jesus uh, calling people to, to truly believe in what real belief in his gospel really looks like. And that word, the gospel, we, we throw that around all the time in Christian circles. Man, that is a word, even if you, you come here often, uh, we, we say that word all the time. It's this incredibly important thing. And do we understand? Are we following the gospel? The gospel is this thing that purchases for us a relationship uh, with the God of the universe, and, and that's difficult and tricky. Um, I've been thinking a lot this last week about um, my marriage, and so when I think about just relationships and, and specifically stepping into relationships that, okay, how is this going to work um, based on commitment, but how is this going to work? Um, I got engaged. Uh, I was 23. Danielle, you correct me if I'm wrong on any of, these, any of this math. I was 23 at the time. Danielle was 21, right, babe? Okay, yes. Uh, so far, so good. And uh, I had not graduated college yet. I had no career path. She had not finished school yet. And yet we got engaged, and we we're always like, why didn't anyone stop us? Um, we didn't really know what we were doing, but I remember it was, uh, we're celebrating, and one of the reasons I've been thinking about our marriage a ton is because we're celebrating our 15th year wedding anniversary this next Thursday, which is fun. Yay, hooray marriage. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> uh, and one of the things that I think about is, man, we, we were two kids who just really didn't know what they were doing in a lot of ways, but, but there was this foundation that we had. I proposed to Danielle in a field in Leadville, Colorado. I'm going to tell you the story real quick. It'll be quick, and it won't embarrass you, babe, I promise. Um, I, I proposed in this field, and I got down on one knee, and I asked her, will you be my wife? And, and in doing that, uh, I really genuinely didn't know what I was signing up for. And I think one of the ways I want that to connect with us is the gospel is this thing that signs us up, that, that purchased for us this relationship. And I think so often we're like, we don't even know what we're signing up for. And in our engagement, actually, I, uh, I, I was like, man, I'm going to be super romantic. She was up in Colorado with this church thing that she was doing for like six months. And so I went up there to pick her up and drive her back down to Dallas, where we were both from. And so instead, 
I had my brother pick her up in a rental car and drive her through the mountains like an hour and a half to this field we had scouted. It was like this really pretty field at the base of these two 14,000-foot mountains. And I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. And I'm out there in the field, and I get down on a knee, and I say, and I ask her, she'll be my, I don't even remember what I said. I just probably panicked. Um, but she said yes somewhere in there. And I'm like hugging her and kissing, and it's awesome. And, and my brother is there, and my wife loves fireworks. Um, and that's a big thing for her. Fourth of July is like an incredible holiday in our family, and we got to find fireworks. And so me, being the romantic now fiancé that I was, I was like, I got to have fireworks go off whenever she says yes to me. <clears throat> However, there was a fire ban in Colorado, so I drove across the border and bought fireworks and smuggled them back into Colorado. So after she says yes, my brother is running around, who's the chauffeur, lighting fireworks and shooting them up. And so it's this like epic romantic moment. And there I am getting to make out with my new fiance in the middle of a field, the fireworks exploding in the background. It's incredible. And then like, we're like, you know, there and people are, you know, my brother's taking pictures. And all of a sudden we're like, <coughs> man, it's kind of smoky. This is, and all of a sudden we realize, oh, oh, this field is catching on fire now. And so it went from like, oh, this is so sweet and so romantic. to Oh, that's why there's a fire ban. I see now. And so being the, the romantic fiance I was, I was like, I got to get my wife to safety. And there was like an engagement party waiting for us back in Denver. So we hopped in the car and just left. My brother, don't worry, don't worry, Colorado didn't burn down. We had bought a fire extinguisher for this just in case. And I remember driving away. I remember driving away and looking in the rearview mirror and seeing my brother out there just like running around a field spraying with a little Walmart fire extinguisher. And honestly, that is such a picture um, of our marriage, even in so many ways, of our relationship. I love my wife. I, I love our marriage, but man, I am not perfect. I am not a perfect husband. She is not a perfect wife. Our marriage is not this perfect marriage. Our marriage in a lot of ways is, you know, fireworks and then also us putting out fires together and figuring out what that looks like. And one of the things that we signed up for was that, was how do we figure this out? And, and marriage, which you're going to see that as an illustration throughout the sermon, marriage is this thing that God has designed to ultimately be an illustration for who he is, for who he is and how we're called to relate to him and what that relationship looks like. And so the gospel, which we're going to unpack today, which we're going to define what really is that word, what does it mean, how do I apply it, how does that really enter into enter me into this relationship with the God of the universe. Through the gospel, through the gospel, Jesus is calling you to something deeper. He is calling you to a deeper relationship with him, something deeper than just the show, than just the worship service, than just showing up and, and doing the Christian thing. Through the gospel, Jesus is calling you to something deeper than just being a part of the crowd. And let me show you in Luke 14, what I mean, because setting the scene here, what's happening is Jesus is walking around, um, and he's got all of these followers. I mean, tons and tons of followers who are just like, man, this guy's awesome, and we're big fans, and we're all about Jesus. But what Jesus discerns is these people don't really know what it means to follow me. They are enamored with me. They show up. I'm doing cool stuff, and that's very impressive. They're very attracted to Jesus, but they don't really know what it looks like they don't understand the gospel, and they don't really know what it looks like to truly follow him. And so what you're going to see is, honestly, uh, I know Easter Sunday, you're kind of supposed to go light on people and make it real soft and get a skit and show some bunnies and things like that. But we're going to preach hard truth. We're going to preach hard truth from, from this stage, um, what the Bible says, because what Jesus does here is he turns to this crowd, and he's going to start saying some really hard, controversial stuff because he wants them to really understand what they're getting into. 
verse 25 through 33. This is what Jesus says. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Eyebrow raising right there. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, by desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. We're going to work ourselves backwards through this text. And so I'm going to start with that section I just read there that at the end there, which is 28 through 32. And really, I, I said, I mean, there's some eyebrow-raising statements that Jesus says, right? Jesus is not just looking for his popularity. He's not looking for a lot of fans. That's not what he's looking for. He turns and says, this is what you're signing up for. Do you understand what, what this looks like? And, and, uh, and so he, he tells them, too, these two illustrations, if you caught them. There's these two illustrations, he says. One of a builder. Somebody's going to build a tower. They're going to measure their materials, right? They're going to, they're gonna, before they start, they're going to be like, do I have enough to finish this? Otherwise, they're going to look like a fool that they've started this thing, and they ran out of supplies, and they ran out of resources. Or the, uh, the general, the king, who's going to war, and he's going to evaluate, do I stand a chance? And if I don't stand a chance, I'm not going to lead my kingdom into a massacre. I've got to figure out some sort of way to get, to get peace if I don't stand a chance. The point is Jesus is challenging his followers to evaluate. Be thoughtful. Evaluate. Know what you're signing up for. What, what is this thing? What is this Christian life? What is this thing to follow Christ? What's it really look like? I love, I love that you are here. Right, the, the previous service, packed with people, right? And, and you guys here, and at 8.30 at night, we'll have a whole nother crew. Man, praise God that you're coming and showing up on, on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. But Jesus doesn't want us just to come and check the Easter box or the church box. That's not what he's calling us to. He's really saying evaluate, right? Evaluate what it's really gonna cost to follow me. And that's what he does. And my hope is that's what we're gonna do today. And, and if you are here today, if you're here this morning, and you aren't there yet, right? You're not following Jesus. You're not pretending to follow Jesus. You're still searching and asking good questions. I love that you're here. You're in the right place. We say all the time, man, I hope people feel like they can belong before they have to believe everything we believe. We believe this book, right? We believe that this is authoritative. This is where we get our theology, our our understanding of who God is. We're going to get from here. I don't get to just make up what's comfortable or convenient for me. We're going to get it from this book, and, and you might be here, and you might not be there yet, and I love that, and I love that you're here to see Jesus unpack this is really what it looks like to follow me and evaluate, and you get to kind of see this gospel as the foundation for this is what it means, because um, you probably have been thoughtful about that if you're here, and you've probably seen other people, and you're like, is that what Christianity is supposed to be? Is that what following Jesus is supposed to look like? And we're going to look at it from Jesus' standpoint, or maybe you're here, and you are a new believer, Right, you put your faith in Christ, but it's new. You get to see, okay, here's how this foundation of the gospel is supposed to look in my life. Or maybe you are here and you've been walking with Christ for years and years and years and years. That's awesome. We still need the gospel. 
we still need to understand because we drift from it, right? I have been a believer for a long time. I've been in vocational ministry for now uh, two decades, and yet I still drift. I drift. I, I, I fall into misconceptions, right? I find these patterns in my life. Um, every correction in the New Testament, every correction in the, in the letters of the New Testament where the authors are telling a church, hey, man, you're doing this wrong, and you're kind of off here, and hey, man, bring it back in over here, is all tied to this idea of somewhere their alignment to the gospel has gotten off, right? Somewhere it's gotten off, and so many of us get it wrong, right? We have these misconceptions of what the gospel is, and Jesus knows that. He's turning to the crowds, and he's saying, you've got to understand. You've got to evaluate what you're really stepping into, um, and there's no room in this place here for self-righteousness to be like, well, I got it. I know the gospel. I figured it out. I mean, his disciples walked with him for three years, every meal. They're seeing miracles. He's teaching them directly from his mouth, and they missed it, right? At the end, they didn't realize, oh, wait, you're getting crucified, and what's happening, and he dies, and they flee and hide, and I mean, they didn't even understand what was happening, and so um, I think we can all be okay and humble ourselves to say, Lord, would I be reminded Uh, He wants us to understand. He wants us to understand. And so we're going to look at two things. I'm going to spend about 10 minutes talking through some three misconceptions, kind of these false things that we believe about the gospel, kind of some false realities. We're like, oh, it's this and this and this. And then we get there and like, no, that's not what he says. And then we're going to look at, okay, what is the one thing it is? And what are a couple of steps uh, to run towards that? And the reason we're going to talk about misconceptions, the reason I'm even going to spend time talking about some things it's not, is I think that's really important. I think we don't even know what we don't know. Right? I, I think we don't even realize the ways that we are, are making mistakes, the, the misconceptions that we have about the gospel. Let me give you an example by throwing my boy Nathan under the, under the bus. Nathan, who came into the welcome, my guy, he's awesome. Um, he's sitting in the back of the room right now, but don't turn, don't turn around because I'm about to throw him under the bus and it's going to get real awkward. Uh, so he's been on staff for a while now at our church. There's this guy at our church. His name is Kenneth, guys. He is a facilities guy on our, at our church, and we've got a big church and a lot of different campuses. Kenneth is the man. He keeps that thing together. When things break, he's fixing it. He's fixing things before they break. He's, he is just a G. Everybody knows Kenneth. We love Kenneth. He is awesome, right? One day I'm talking to Nathan pretty recently, and Nathan was like, yeah, Keith's awesome. And I was like, what? He was like, yeah, Keith or Kent or something. He, 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 we'll say Keith. Um, and he was like, yeah, Keith, he's awesome. I was like, no, 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 the guy's name is Kenneth. And Nathan was like, what are you talking about? Nathan started accusing me of not knowing Kenneth's name. Me, not knowing Kenneth's name. And he was like, no, our whole department. And so he referenced about 20 people. They're like, yeah, every time we see him in the hallway, we call him Keith. And I was like, bro, that's not his name. So for years now, poor Kenneth walks down the hallway and Nathan so unlovingly just gets his name wrong. Kenneth just keeps serving our church. That not only is a way to throw Nathan under the bus, um, but also because we do that all the time, Right. We just are wrong on things, right? And obviously, Nathan felt really bad, and he repented since then, and he's, he's the nicest guy, and Nathan is the nicest guy in the world, and so I know that makes him cringe. But we do that, right? We don't even know that we're getting it wrong. The whole point of, of misconceptions is we're like, yeah, we think we're fine, and we're like, oh, no way. I was off in that way. So here, here they are. The first one is this. The first misconception I think we believe about the gospel, what is the gospel, what is the Christian life all about, um, is really this misconception of it's about the list, right? 
that it's about the list, that there is this list somewhere in this book that's all about how do I keep all of the rules? How do I keep the rules of do's and how do I stay away from the rules of don'ts? And it's amazing how many people um, in Christianity or outside of Christianity looking in say, oh, that's what it's about. And it is not about that. It is not just a list. Christianity, the gospel, what he calls us to is not a list of rules to modify our behavior. That's not in this book. That is not how we are saved. That's not how we have a relationship. That's not how we enter this relationship with the God of the universe. The entire book of Galatians, which is in the New Testament, and Hebrews, and multiple parts of other books, are all about the correction of churches who had drifted into, we got to follow all the rules. And the apostles writing to them saying, guys, you're missing it. You're missing it. You're forgetting the point. It's about grace. It's not about following all the rules. Um, we see that. It's, if I do the laundry list of things I'm supposed to do and stay away from the things I'm not supposed to do, then the scales will hopefully tip in my favor. And that's not from Scripture. That's counter to what the gospel says, which we'll see here in a second. And we think, well, then I'll eventually get this reward. I'll do all the things I don't want to do begrudgingly, but then I'll end up with a better reward in the long run. It's like, it's like making... Our, my kids eat vegetables, right? And that's how so often we view Christianity. It's, it, Christianity is not broccoli. We, we think, oh man, I'm just supposed to eat this. Or I have to bribe my kids. If you, I know, I know, it's no good, it's no fun. Nobody likes, at least when you're five and eight years old, you don't like to eat broccoli. But if you eat just two more bites of broccoli, we'll get you ice cream or whatever that is. That's how so often we treat Christianity. Wow, I'm just gonna... She's going to do the right thing begrudgingly, and we see it as this honestly killjoy. <laughs> That's not what God has called us to. That's not the Christian life for a couple reasons. First, because following Jesus is not a killjoy. John 10.10, Jesus describes what he came to do. He, he talks about there is an enemy out there who is trying to kill and steal and destroy and lie to you. But then he says, I came to give life and life abundant. He, he came to say, I came to give you an abundance of life, not I came to give you a list of stuff to do, and if you can pass the test, then you'll get something. No, no, in this life, in John 15, Jesus says, stay connected to me, stay connected to me through my grace, our relationship, and you will experience the fullness of joy, right? Here in this life, I get love and joy and peace and, and those things. That's the fruit of what it looks like to walk with him. It's not uh, following a list to modify my behavior so that I, I look like a good Christian, and yet we all drift into that trap because we live in such a performance-driven society. Everything else around us, Jesus is counter. He's countercultural. Everything else is, I do these things and I earn it. I, I do this and I get the favor that I'm supposed to. If I'm really nice to this person and that person, I'm then entitled. They better be nice to me. If I do this, then I should get paid for what I do. All of those things, and, and those things make sense, but Jesus says the gospel is different. It's different. And, and he says you can't earn it. Right? You, there is no list. Even if you mastered the list, you would still come up short. Ephesians 2, which I highly recommend you spending some time in. It's just such an awesome chapter, and specifically the beginning of Ephesians 2, what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2. As he says, man, you are a sinner and your sin has separated you and that because of sin and disobedience and apathy and pride and all of that, then you are dead in your sins. You're dead in your rebellion. And then he says, but God, but God, not but you cleaned yourself up. No, no, you were dead. You had zero to bring to the table. But God 
saves and rescues and cleans and makes right what is what we've made wrong and then in verse 8 you know if you go through Ephesians 2 you get to verse 8 he says he summarizes he says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your doing it is a gift of God I mean Isaiah 64 says even your best righteous deeds are still filthy rags there is no list it's by grace that you've been saved through faith So we're going to talk about faith in the gospel. Faith in what? What does it look like to have faith? Because it's not just a list of rules to to modify your life so that you're good enough. Um, You can't earn it. And not being able to earn it would be really discouraging except for the freedom that we'll talk about here in a little bit from what the real gospel is. Um, And don't miss this too. Don't miss this. If you are walking with Christ there should be change in our behavior. That's not what earns our relationship with Christ, but there should be a change in our behavior if we're really maturing and growing and walking in Christ. Make no mistake, yes, our life should look slowly different, but the comforting thing is that even when it doesn't, the ups and downs, at least of my Christian life, the weeks where I'm doing good and the weeks where I feel like, man, I'm prideful and selfish and you know, stuck in sin and all of those things that God doesn't change His love, his relationship with me never changes because it was never what I did that earned the relationship in the first place. My kids, who are awesome, and they're here playing on the iPad right now in the back room uh, because that's my parenting style. Um, My kids, they're incredible, right? And they really are such good kids. My love for them won't change, right? Even if they get in trouble a lot at school, that doesn't change my love for them. And, And I'm an imperfect father. And we have a perfect father who says, that's not how I earned you in the first place. And that's certainly not how I keep you. Okay, misconception two is this. I grew up in uh, Texas, the Bible Belt, right? And I love it. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I grew up in the church. Again, I'm raising my kids in church, kind of. They're on the iPad, but you get the idea. Um, right, like I grew up in the church and, and this wasn't an evil thing. Um, It just wasn't a fully formed idea. And it was this idea that I believed about what the Christian life was, which was a prayer that I pray, right? The gospel, the Christian life is not a transactional prayer that I pray. That's, that's not what he's calling us to do. And, and growing up, if you, you might not, that might not be a thing for you, but if you grew up in the church, specifically if you grew up in the church in the South, man, I got asked to pray a prayer all the time. And sometimes I was like, shoot, did I do it right? Maybe I need to do it again. So I like, I got to say it again, or I said it, but then I did some bad stuff this last week and I cheated on my math test and I stole some money from the bank or whatever I did. I don't know what I did. And then it's like, I got to pray that prayer again, right? Because I lost it and I got it. And it was this nebulous thing and I didn't know if I was saying the right words and all these things. And that's not what Christ calls us to, right? There's a reference in Romans 10 that sometimes people go to and they say, if you confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. And so they're like, oh, well, all you got to do if you want to be a Christian is just confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth. The problem is we take that verse massively out of context when we reduce the gospel to, to just praying a prayer, right? Jesus turns to the crowds and he is not saying, hey, all you gotta do is this. No, no, he's, we're reducing, we're taking, if, if back in 2,000 years ago when that verse was written, confess Jesus as Lord, confess Jesus as Lord was treason, right? The word Lord there, we now think of Lord as a spiritual thing. Back then it was Caesar, 
Caesar was Lord. That's where we get that word, right? He's, he's playing on the word of Caesar is Lord. And if you don't say Caesar is Lord in the Roman government, then you will be killed. You'll be fed to lions. You'll be killed. You'll lose your job. You'll lose your life. You'll lose your family. And so the sentiment 2,000 years ago written in the book of Romans, confess Jesus as Lord, for us, we're like, oh, that's all I got to do. But for them, they were like, oh, that means put my life on the line. That means claim Jesus over everything else. That means value Jesus more than I value everything else in my life. There is a high call to follow God. But so often we just reduce it to just pray this prayer. And it's not nowhere in here. Does, does God say all you got to do is, is pray this prayer? If anyone sells you, just as an as a FYI, if anyone sells you in Christianity or really religion, but specifically Christianity, and they say all you got to do, or they use the rhetoric, it's just this. And we just want to oversimplify. I would say, man, red flag. Go to God's word. Man, find other people. All we got to do, and we, we have a tendency to be like, oh, all you got to do is this. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus was saying. Last misconception is this. Again, growing up in the church, and I totally understand, there's a well-meaningness to, hey, pray this prayer as a kid, right? And, and I don't blame them for that. And I prayed the prayer when I was a kid. But there's an idea of, okay, then that should mature. I don't just rest in confidence. I have to have a relationship outside of that. But also, it's not just about a spiritual community I belong to. And I think we do that all the time. It's not just a spiritual community we belong to. And so, so often, when we evaluate, when we're weighing the cost, like Jesus told us to, and we're evaluating, okay, am I following Jesus? I think so often I drift to, well, I mean, look at my community going to church. I'm a pastor, so I must be, right? Like, uh, uh, we look at our community, we think, or we look at our family, which those are all good things. If you've got family that, that, you know, believes in Jesus, great. Your family's faith doesn't build your foundation of faith. You might be a part of a Christian organization. You might be really involved at a church and go to church and, and do those things. That isn't what God calls us to. It's not just a spiritual community. That, that doesn't check the box for us. Judas was as close to Jesus as anyone could have been, right? Judas was in his inner circle, and Judas wasn't there. He didn't have it. He wasn't, he wasn't following Christ. So what is it? What is it? If it's not those things, if it's not a, a list that I can check off to make sure that I'm good enough, if it's not just a prayer that I pray, and I've checked this box, if it's not just being a part of a Christian community, what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us exactly simplified. Here's what it is. He says in verses 3 and 4, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he lists it off. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according with the scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ, real simply put, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is a historic event that happened 2,000 years ago. The information of what you do with that changes everything. Because just believing that Jesus um, was born and, and died and rose again doesn't do anything. In fact, James Chapter 2, verse 19 says, man, even the demons believe, right? Even, even you believe God is one, great. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. And so this confidence of, well, okay, sure, I believe that historical event isn't, isn't what he calls us to. 
It's what that means for us. What my faith in that means, what I do with that information is entirely another thing because the reality of what scripture is and why his death, burial, and resurrection means everything for me today on this Sunday morning and tomorrow morning when I wake up is because I believe that I am a sinner. I believe Romans, it says that all have sinned, all have fallen short. The penalty of my sin is separation from God. I believe that. Man, Nathan said at the beginning, we are a room of broken people. We look good, we put on a mask. Some of us, I'm good at faking it. Man, being in ministry for a while, I know what I'm supposed to look like and say and do. We're good at that, man. But we're sinners, but we're honest before God. I don't deserve a relationship with the God who has designed me ultimately, but I'm designed for it. I don't deserve it, which would be incredibly, there's no list that's discouraging. There's no list that I can do to earn it. And yet I get it because God said, you can't make it. So I'm going to send my son. He's going to die for your disobedience, Ben, and raise again. And now Jesus stands at the right hand of God saying, that's my boy, that's my girl. That's the beauty of the death, burial, and resurrection, that what it purchased for me, for those who are fully in Christ, not who said a prayer, not who checked a box, not who just historically agrees with the resurrection, but who says, yes, that's my king. Then for us, we get freedom in Christ. We get him, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 talks about that he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus, perfect, knew no sin, became sin on the cross for you for all of your shame, for all of the mistakes that you've made and will make and I've made. That's how powerful his grace is. His grace is more powerful than all of your mistakes. Do you believe that? All of your mistakes, all of the things that you're like, man, if you only knew where I've been, if you only knew what I've done, if you only knew what I thought about doing, and you have a God of the universe who says, yeah, and I still love you. And I love you to the point of sending my son. Do we believe it? Where do we go from there? Here's what I want to encourage you to leave with. I want you to be challenged by Luke 14, by Jesus turning and saying, I'm not just going to give you a a soft, easy answer. and We all leave chipper. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to be real. I'm going to be honest with you. And so where we go first is I want you to realize it's radical. When you leave here, right, it, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, right, you're not there yet, you're brand new there, or, or you've been there for a long time, all of us need to say, God, do we realize how radical your call is? Luke 14, 26, we read at the beginning. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, clearly, Jesus is not actually telling you to hate your family, right? In the context of the rest of Scripture, he's using, he's using hyperbole to, to say, this is radical. Pay attention, right? Throughout the rest of Scripture, he very much encourages you to love your family. He takes good care of his family and his mother and those things. And so he's not really saying hate them. He's saying, hey, don't make this some easy, shallow thing. To follow me is deep, and it's hard. And are you really all in? And it's radical. And he's getting this crowd's attention. Right? This crowd's attention to say, are you paying attention? Because this isn't just an easy little show that you get to be a part of. Right? Because of what's at stake. God's glory, your design is at stake. Are you paying attention? Do you realize 
How radical. It's not a cultural thing that you show up to a few times a year. To follow Christ is a radical thing that Jesus says, this is going to be big. It's going to be challenging. If your faith and your relationship with Jesus fits conveniently in a box that you can keep on a shelf and you can pull it out when you need it or you're discouraged and then you put it back conveniently back in a little compartment of your life. I love you. That's not Jesus. That's not what he has called us to do and I do it. We all do it, right? We, we want to just say, okay, Jesus, I know you're calling us something radical but I just really kind of want this comfortable shoebox version of you. And when I want you, I'll pull you out. Or when I'm really struggling on a test or when I'm really in a low place, I'm going to pull you out. That's not what he calls us to, to do. And, and I think so often he loves us anyway. Even when we put him, even when I put him in the box, he still loves me. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, you're not my kid anymore. He still loves me. But I think I'm showing the world around me a, a pretty poor version of really what it is to walk with Christ. It's radical. And it's radical because the second thing I want you to walk out of here with is not just realizing it's radical, evaluating those costs, but also surrendering your life. Surrender your life. That's what he calls us to. That's why it's radical. The very next verse, verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And everyone who heard that, they would have realized immediately what that meant. Bear your cross. Cross was the Roman crucifixion. That, that, that idea. That was how the Roman government executed people. It was humiliating. It was incredibly excruciating. They had mastered torture the Roman government had, and that's what it meant. And so Jesus is saying, hey, don't settle for shallow. I'm calling you to be surrendered, to, to die to yourself. I love how Paul puts this. Paul, um, the apostle, he takes the gospel. He takes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he says, this is how it applies to my life. He says, functionally, his testimony in a sentence in Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes to these people, and he says, man, for I have been crucified with Christ. He says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And the life which I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's what Paul says. He's saying what it looks like to surrender is to say my life isn't my own. My life isn't my own. I surrender to you. I put my faith in you. The life which I now live in faith, I live in faith in you. So uh, the way I'm a student, the way I'm a husband, the way I'm a wife, the way I'm an employee, the way I'm a citizen, or all the, hopefully you're a good steward of those things and you do them well, but you do them in a way that says, God, I want my life to be glorifying to you. I want to work hard. I want to do those things well in a way that brings you glory because ultimately we believe that's what we're designed for. Um, and that's what he calls us to do. He says, man, come and surrender. And it's this initial thing of surrender that he asks us to do, but then it also, it's an ongoing thing. For anyone who's in Christ already in this room, it's not just a, oh, yeah, I've already surrendered. I don't need to surrender. No, no, no. It's a daily thing. I am saved once and for all, and God will never take that adoption away from me. But it is an ongoing relationship of saying, God, this is about you, not me. And daily, I want to take it back, and I want to make it about me, and he reminds me kindly, Ben, you shouldn't be sitting on the throne. I should. I said, but I want to make my life all about me and my kingdom. If my marriage, so April 21st, 2007, I stood on a stage with Danielle and I promised her to be her husband, right? And I, I promised to love her. And that was April 21st. But 
And that was important, right? That was the day we got married. But every day after that is still this battle. And I don't do it well. But it's an ongoing relationship of saying, I'm about you. I'm about you and you are for me. Your grace is overwhelming to me and I'm about you. Practically, let me ask you, what are the things that you're still holding on to? What are the things that you still hold on to to say, I don't want to surrender this? I don't want to surrender this yet. I want you to think about that. I want you to ask God, show me the areas that I don't want to surrender. We all do them. I don't care where you are in your faith story. We all hold on to things and say, man, I don't want, I'll take God in a box, but I don't want to surrender to him. I'll take the convenient thing where I say the prayer, check the list, but surrender, make my life about him, that, that can be uncomfortable. People might think I'm weird. I might not get the success I want. All kinds of fears creep in there. We have to ask do we believe? Do we really believe? And then the last thing is we don't just surrender. We don't just let go of something. We also step into something in the affirmative. And so our challenge here, and we see it in, in this chapter, is follow him, right? It says it in that same verse. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. We're not just letting go of, of ourself and our selfishness. We're also stepping into following a God who loves us. Letting his kindness lead us to that kind of a lifestyle. He's not an angry God standing on the porch with his arms folded. Oh, you better get your stuff together. He's a God throughout scripture that is compassionate and kind. And while we were still sinners and while we're a mess and while we bring nothing to the table, he said, that's my girl, that's my guy. I love them and I want to walk with them. Walk with me. And then all of those things, studying the Bible and being in Christian community and all those things that we make the list, those things become a response. They become a thing that come out of a relationship knowing I've got a father who loves me, loves me despite my sin. God, would I surrender to that kind of love? Would I see your gospel and say, God, yes, I can't do it myself. I trust in you for my forgiveness. I trust in you for my adoption as your kid, undeserving of it. Here's the last thing I want to encourage you with. It's worth it. Is it easy? Is it free? No. But it's worth it. What do you bring to the table? Your good works? Nope. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. But God says my grace is enough. Follow me. It's worth it. I'm going to end with the story Jesus told. He, he tells this parable and it's... Um, a parable of a, of a man who is going along, I love the story, and he finds a treasure in a field. And he finds this treasure, and he's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And so what he does, he doesn't own the field. So what he does is he goes and he sells everything he has, Scripture says, to buy that field. But it says, out of joy, he sells everything he has and buys the field. And I love that Jesus, when he tells that story, he says, out of joy, he sells everything. He sells everything. He fully surrendered. He's fully bought in. He says, oh my goodness, because why? Because what's in the field is worth it. Because logically, he's coming along and he's like, whoa, this is so much better than everything else I have. So I am going to skip to the bank and be so happy to sell everything I have because I get to buy this field because I know what's in the field is so much better. That is Jesus' offer for us. One time, yes. If you've never done that, if you've never said yes to that, if you've done the boxes like I did or did the prayer that I did and just thought, yeah, yeah, I prayed this once when I was a kid or, or man, you just lean on the fact that you've got a Christian family or a Christian community or, or, or come to church, 
It's like, God, I've never surrendered to your grace. When I surrender to you, would you meet me in my brokenness? And you think, God, so many baby steps. Yes. And let him walk with you. Let him show you how he loves you. Let him show you he's designed to give you life and life abundant. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that um, we don't have to water down what the gospel is. We don't have to turn it into a sales pitch. We can just preach what your word says. We can talk about that it's difficult. That God, what you're asking, what you want from us as a loving father, as a gracious father, what you want from us is all of us but not because you're some killjoy. You want all of us because you have something better. You are better. God, the rest of our life is slowly letting go of those things that honestly rob us of joy and choosing you. And I pray that would mark our life. I pray that my brothers and sisters in this room, that that would mark our life, that we've surrendered to you, that we follow you And then the rest of our life being marked with this relationship with a God who wants to draw near to us. So Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what you did 2,000 years ago and not just because we believe it happened, but would we put our faith in that? Do what only you can do in the name of Jesus. Amen.